know, one of the words that we use in church often is the word discipleship. And we use it in a variety of ways, but I think the key way that we use it is that it's an ideal that we have. We want to do discipleship. And I think if we sort of thought about it, we realize that it's kind of the core of Christianity is this idea of discipling people. It's what we hope to do when we preach, when we teach, when we lead studies, when we spend time with other Christians. And we want to disciple them. We want to, well, whatever that means, whatever we understand by that term. So it's an important word. It's something that we're familiar with. It's something that we we use, I guess, fairly regularly. Uh, but I wonder what what does it mean to us? How do we define it? Uh, and I, I sort of different people I talk to sort of have different ideas about what discipleship looks like in their particular context. And so I wanted to take this back to the first century. I want to go back to sort of Paul's understanding of Paul's context around this world around this world and just see maybe how he would have understood it how he sort of presents this idea in his in his letters so the word itself disciple discipleship disciple it comes from the it's a latin word it's the word discipulus and it's a common latin word it literally means student uh, it's just a as generic as the English word student, the equivalent in Greek is the word methetes, and that's a word we've probably heard before, maybe in a sermon or or whatever, and it's the same word. It's a generic Greek word that means a student, and the idea being somebody who sits under the teachings of a teacher. So there's nothing complicated about it. It's a very straightforward idea, and it has the same implications as we what we might Imagine if of the Greek word of the English word student. You think about I've got I've got four kids and they're all students at a school, uh, and so it has the same sort of idea. So that's easy enough. We can we can all understand that. We can all follow along with that. But what we may not fully appreciate, what we may not really maybe understand properly, is what it it looked like to be a student in the first century? What did, what did education look like in the ancient world? You know, was it something like we have today where we send our kids to school and they sit in a classroom or maybe we go to university and we, we sit in a lecture and we listen to a lecturer talk about content that we take in and take notes and do tests and all the rest of it? Is it like that? What was it that they did? How did they do this process of education? So I want to look at that uh for this particular podcast, but what I want to do is actually look at how does that relate to our New Testament. And I think this is one of those important aspects of the early church that maybe we don't fully appreciate, maybe we don't even know about. If you were to take an outsider, let's just say you're in Corinth, for example, and you're an outsider who, you know, there's a church, there's a, the Corinthian church is there, but you don't know anything about it. And one of those church members was to come and say, you know, come and have a look at this particular gathering. You know, we're doing church this Sunday, come and have a look at what we're doing. And they take you along and they sort of, you know, you don't have to necessarily go in, but just imagine you're looking through the window of the house that they're, they're meeting in. And they say to you, What's, what do you think's going on in here? Looking at what this group is doing, they're, they're meeting together. What does that look like to you? Well, if you're a first century Corinthian, your first assumption would be, well, that looks like a school. 
that looks like a place of education. And that person up the front who's reading scrolls and teaching from what looks like philosophical texts, that must be the teacher, that must be the philosopher. And so for a first century person who, for an outsider looking in on the church, their assumption would be that this is some sort of philosophical school. This is something like we see in other contexts of education. We see Stoic uh, philosophers, we see Epicurean philosophers, Cynic philosophers, and they have their students and their students will follow them around and, and learn from them and, and try to become like them. And so when they would have looked at the church, they would have just had the same assumption. They would have just had that understanding of this is what it is that I'm, that I'm looking at here. And so the ancient or, or the first church, the early church, the first century church, really was a school. It, it functioned as a type of educational institution. In a way, one way we might understand it is something like a form of adult education, uh, particularly for the majority of people who went to the church who'd never had an education themselves. See, the thing about ancient education was that it was a very exclusive domain. Only a very few people could get an education because only a very few people could afford that sort of thing. You know, for most people in the ancient world, you're, you're living at subsistence level poverty. And so if you're a child, you're, as soon as you're old enough, as soon as you're physically capable enough, you're put to work. And usually that's around the age of maybe eight through to 10. That's when you starting to work in the family business. You're working out in the field, you're working whatever your family's work is, you're there to help. Your job as a child is to help contribute to the family's needs. And they can't afford to send you to school because they need you working on the farm or they need you working in the family business. And so school's not an option for most people, but for the wealthy ones, for those who could afford to give their kids an education, then that's precisely what they want for their children. Now, when I say children, I don't mean the girls, of course, because only the boys get an education. Now, if you're a girl, you're going to be married off as a teenager. So there's no point spending all of that money educating you when you're not even living with us after about the age of 13 anyway. And at any rate, a girl in the ancient world has the task of making babies, getting married, finding a husband, having children, and that's kind of the role that's expected of her. And so you don't need a formal education to do that. You're trained by your mother. You're trained in the domestic chores that are required of you as a future wife. And so that's the sort of education the women will receive, but the men, or particularly for the wealthy men and the, for their boys, they expect that their children are going to be educated or they're going to look for the best education that they can get for them because they want their sons to have the best opportunities to succeed in public life. And that's going to be the goal that every father has for his son. And so what a father would then do, this father who's got high ambitions for his son to become, to follow in his footsteps and to carry on the family name and to continue to bring honor to the family legacy, that's the ambition for the son. Well, in order for the, to do that, in order for the son to carry on that, that legacy, he needs to be educated. He, they need to find a teacher for the son who is going to best prepare them and shape them to become this thing that this person that the father desires them to be. And so they would look for a teacher. They would find somebody who is at the best that they can possibly afford 
and, and somebody who is of a good reputation, somebody who best embodies the values of the father, and they would entrust their son to that teacher's care. And in some cases, as in the case of many of the Roman fathers, say in the late Republic, early Empire, they would even send their sons all the way to Athens to get their education over there because that was where the best philosophers and the best orators were to, to train. And so this was the process. This is what you do as a wealthy family and this is what you do as, a, as an elite young man growing up. This is what your life looks like. You find you're, you're assigned to a teacher and it's your job to sit under that teacher's teaching and ultimately to become like them. Now, one of the assumptions that we perhaps need to get out of our heads is this modern notion of sitting in a classroom and listening to lectures and having different lectures on different topics. That's not how it was. What, what education looked like was that you would have a teacher, you would have an, a philosopher, somebody who embodied wisdom and knowledge and virtue and you would follow after them. They would give lectures, of course. They would have dialogue with you and you would learn information. But more importantly than that, you would follow them around. You would live with them. You would be a, a follower of them. They would become your mentor. And it was your responsibility to listen to them, but also to imitate them, to embody them, to become like them. In fact, one of the greatest compliments a student could receive is for someone to say, you look like your teacher. You, you resemble your mentor. And so this was the responsibility then of the teacher to bring out the best in, their son, to, in these sons and to ultimately give them back to their fathers in the best possible way that they could with the best knowledge and with the best virtues. And this is what their task would then be. So it's really appropriate that when Jesus calls his disciples, he doesn't say, I'm teaching at 9 a.m. every Tuesday down here in this particular synagogue, come and listen to my lectures. What he says, in fact, is come and follow me. Come and be with me. Come and walk alongside me. Listen to what I teach, but also do the things that I do. Become like me. And so the greatest compliment those disciples could ever hear is, you look like your teacher. And particularly when they were out then doing their own works, they had Jesus has empowered them with the spirit and they're off doing their own ministries and they're out evangelizing. What the greatest compliment they could hear is you look a lot like that Jesus guy. You seem to do and say the same things that he did and said. So this is the process of education. This is how you, this is how you do things. And the goal of all of it, of course, was to become like your father. That was what the ultimate purpose then of giving a son to a teacher so that they can become the best, best representative of your family, of you and of your values. So it's interesting then when Paul comes along and he says to his churches, one of the things that he says, well, often to his churches is imitate me. He'll say to his churches, Imitate me, Paul. Do the things that I do. Imitate me. And at a first reading, you think it's a bit strange. Like, what do you mean imitate Paul? You know, don't we, aren't we supposed to imitate Christ? Isn't 
isn't the idea of being Christian because we're mini Christs. We're supposed to look like Christ, do the things that Christ does. Why is Paul now saying imitate me? Shouldn't he say imitate Christ? Well, yes, (laughs) but the idea that Paul is conveying here is imitate the way that I follow Christ. Look at how I live out my Christian faith. Look at the way that I sacrifice for for Christ, the way that I, I, I live my life in service to him. Look at the way that I follow him and follow after me in that same way. See, what Paul's presenting himself is not Christ himself, but as somebody who is something of an ideal, something of an exemplar of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so he's giving himself, like the teachers who are, their task is to help the boys to become like their father. What they say to the students is imitate me because I embody the same values that your father wants you to embody. And so I become something of a representative of the ultimate goal of becoming like your dad. So this is what Paul has in mind when he says this. And so what I want to look at are these examples where Paul says to his churches, imitate me. And there's a couple of key times that he does this. And I want to sort of bring those out and unpack them a little bit and just see what some of these principles are and perhaps what they can be, what value they they might have for us today. So the first one we'll look at is in 1 Corinthians 4.14. And he says this, he says, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. So what's happening in Corinth is you've got this dispute in the church. Paul has been to Corinth for the 18-month ministry that he did there. He's left. He's gone back to Ephesus. And in his place came a young teacher by the name of Apollos. Now, the difference with Apollos to Paul is that Apollos was a fantastic preacher. Paul had his moments But as he says to the Corinthians, he says, when I was with you, I didn't put on a good show. I didn't preach to you to the full capacity that I could because that would have created this situation where you look at me as being the most important thing. You look at the quality of my preaching as being somehow the representation of my Christ-likeness. And he said, I didn't want you to do that. I didn't want you to glorify me and my abilities. I wanted you to glorify Christ. And so in order to do that, I humbled myself. I stepped down. I put on this show of being a terrible preacher so that if you did happen to listen, all you would see was Christ because it certainly wasn't anything great that I was doing. Well, Apollos being a young preacher, he didn't have that same opportunity. It was a bit harder for him to sort of do that. And so when he preached, he was great. He was fantastic. We read about this in Acts 19 where Apollos would be arguing with the the teachers of the law in Corinth and he would be just demolishing them. He was just this incredibly articulate, very smart, wise sort of preacher. And that really appealed to this Corinthian audience. And so what that led to was this situation where you would have some people saying, I follow Paul, but then others are saying, well, I follow Apollos. Now, the other thing we probably have to imagine as well isn't that just that they they had heard Paul and they'd heard Apollos and they'd chosen Apollos. Probably there was a case too where there were some teachers or, or some 
people in the church who'd become Christians under Apollos's ministry after Paul had left. And so maybe not even heard of Paul, maybe not even, or maybe if they'd heard of him, had never seen his ministry, but they did know Apollos. And so it would be a natural thing for them to say, well, I follow Apollos. He, he's my man. Well, then we've got this situation then where Paul's saying, hey, guys, look, you know, this whole I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, this is really problematic. This comparing the two of us, it, it actually misunderstands what our roles are. So what he says is, is he says, you, you, even if you had 10,000 guardians, now this word guardian here, this is the Greek word is the word pedagogoi. So we get a word pedagogy from. Um, the idea of this pedagogue, the pedagogue was like a tutor. The pedagogue was often a slave that a wealthy family would have whose sole job it was, was to help with the education of the young boys. So the father was a busy man. He couldn't take care of all of the educational responsibilities for his sons. And so he would entrust that to a, an educated slave whose job it was, was to look after the education and would have helped the kids with their schoolwork to walk them to and from school. It sort of take on almost a fatherly role. In fact, we see examples of this where the sons would become closer and, and, and more intimate in their relationship with the tutors than they would with their own fathers because that was the person they spent the most time with. So what Paul's saying is you've got 10,000 of these pedagogoi. Amongst them is Apollos, but you don't have many fathers. And in Christ, I became that. And so I understand the difference between our roles. You're going to have lots of teachers who are going to come through Corinth but I was the one who got this thing started. I was the one who planted this church. You are my children and ultimately you're my responsibility. And so these teachers may come and go, but I'm the one that has to give an account. I'm the one who is going to be held accountable for what sort of people you become. And so that's a, new, that's a responsibility that I take very seriously. And it also means that in terms of who you come to imitate, who you come to model yourself after, well, that needs to be me because that's the responsibility that I've been given. So what Paul is saying here is that you can have all your favorite teachers, you can have the, all of these teachers that you, you like and you admire, but don't ever lose sight of the person you're trying to become like, the person you're supposed to imitate, which in this case is me as your father in Christ. And so he goes on and he says in verse 17, for this reason I've sent to you Timothy, my son whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with that, with what I teach everywhere in every church. One of the practices of ancient education, as in many educational contexts today, is that you would get an older student to help the teacher with teaching the basics. So I'll give you an example. My son does jujitsu and You've got the professor who's the black belt, and so he's the he's the expert, and he's the one with the the great knowledge and and all of that. What he will do is get some of his older students, older than my seven year old son, to help with the lessons, maybe help with the warm ups or help with some of the basic exercises. Now he will help with the advanced exercises, but for the basic exercises, he'll get these older students who are maybe teenagers. And, but, old, but importantly, who are further down the road. They're not a professor, they're not a black belt like him, maybe they're a yellow belt, for example, uh, but they're certainly further along than the young kids who they're training. And so there's, 
there's a whole sort of purpose to that. What it what it does for the younger students is that, well, for the one who's doing the teaching, it gives them the opportunity to advance in their own learning. But importantly for the younger kids like my son, it gives them somebody closer to themselves to emulate. It's easier to look to a yellow belt who's a few years older than them than a professor who's 50 years older than them and has been doing this for multiple of how long my son has been alive. It's an easier sort of benchmark to set. So that was true in the ancient schools as well. You would have the philosopher, you would have the expert, the, the teacher to whom the, the kids are, are ultimately um, studying under, but then you would have these older students who would be assisting and actually helping with those sort of more basic exercises. And so in this case, what Paul's saying here is that that's Timothy's role. Timothy's a young man, he's younger than I am, but in terms of his faith, he's older than you guys. And so he's still learning the ropes. He's like you, he's not there yet, but he's further down the path. And so what I know about Timothy is that he's somebody I can trust to emulate my way. See, these older students, they've learned from the professor, they've learned from the master. And so the master knows that if I entrust my students to you, they're going to get the same thing from you as they would from me. So Timothy's going to do that on Paul's behalf. Now, Paul can't get there himself, otherwise he wouldn't be sending this letter. So by sending Timothy, he knows that he's got somebody he can trust and somebody that Corinthians can look to and say, well, if we do what you do, we know what we do, that we're doing what Paul is doing. And so this is what Paul says. This is what Paul does. And I guess if we're talking about principles, if we're talking about application here, perhaps it's something like the senior leader who has got some more mature, older Christians within the church who is enabling them, empowering them to help with the younger ones. So think about maybe a youth group context where you've got the, the senior pastor and he's got a leadership team or she's got a leadership team of young men and women youth leaders who are looking after the kids in the church. They're, they're not as far along perhaps as the senior pastor, but certainly further along than the children that they're looking after. But the point of all of this is that they are representative of the values that that particular leader or that particular church embodies. Another example we get is 1 Thessalonians 1.6. Paul says to the Thessalonians, he says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering, with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously. He goes on sorry, in uh, chapter 2, verse 2. He says, We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So Paul says, You became imitators of us, and in this particular case, in the way that we handled suffering. This is a really important lesson, I think, because... One of, the, one of the things that I've seen in my own church experience is this sort of idea or this practice where leaders or people in places of authority will try to hide their weakness. They'll try to uh, just put on this facade that everything about my life is fantastic. Everything that I touch turns to gold. Everything that I'm doing that I do is, is really good and that I never have a bad day. And so maybe from this maybe misconception that 
you know, if you've got faith, you don't have hard times or, you know, if you're really a believer, you don't ever have a difficult day. And so we don't want people to see our weakness. We don't want people to see people to see a struggle or to know that there's things that we're not good at. We want to have this perception amongst the people that we can do all things, that we know all things or whatever that thing might be. What Paul says here is, no, no, you saw us in the good and the bad. You saw us when things were going well, but you also saw us when things were going terribly. And we were open about all of it because it's just as important for you to see us do things well as is is for you to see us go through difficult times and, and how we respond to that. One of the, I guess, problems that I've, I sort of see when you get, you get this, beha- again, what I was describing just a moment ago, where people have this, give this facade that everything is going right for them. The problem with that is that the people who are watching look at you and say, well, why is everything going right for you? Why do bad things happen to me? What's wrong with me? You never seem to have a bad day, but why do I seem to have bad days? Is there something I'm doing wrong? What I've seen, what I've found is that some of the greatest lessons that I've learned or some of the greatest encouragement that I've seen is when somebody that I'm looking up to, somebody I'm emulating, they go through a hard time. It's not that I want them to go through a hard time, but they're open about going through that difficult time. And then I get to see how they respond in those difficult times as well, that their life isn't perfect. Well, that's great because mine isn't either. And so, okay, well, I don't have to be perfect. And you go through a hard time. Well, I go through hard times. Well, how do you go through that? Show me how to do that. And so Paul's got this, is great here. He says, you became imitators of us, not just in the good, but also in the bad. And then because you became imitators of us, others saw that as well. They saw your faith. They saw your Christianity being outworked. And they, they saw in you, maybe they saw us, but at the very least what they saw in you was Christ. And so that all happened because you became imitators of us because we were open enough, we were real enough with you to show you the good and the bad. We get a similar case in 2 Thessalonians. So 2 Thessalonians 3.7. Paul says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we did not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. So the thing about being a teacher in the ancient world is that teachers were often traveling around. Uh, they would go from town to town. Again, picture Jesus going from city to city, teaching wherever he went, and his disciples following him wherever they went. How did they eat? <laughs> where, did, where did their money come from? We know that Jesus had some patrons. We know that some of the women that traveled with Jesus were, were helping to fund the ministry, But when he sent the disciples out, one of the key instructions that he gave them was about receiving support. When you go into a town, find a place and go and stay with those people because you don't have money with you. You haven't been working. You've been following Jesus for all this time. You haven't been out earning money to live off. You've been supported by these other people. Well, when you're out by yourself, you don't have any resources with you. You're going to be dependent on somebody to provide your needs for you. And so that's a common practice. Teachers can be expected, can expect wherever they go that somebody is going to take care of them. 
Now, for the person who does take care of them, they get the honor of having that person come and stay. And so when somebody comes to town, if you can say to your neighbor, hey, remember that teacher or that teacher who's come to town, that famous person, they're staying with me. I get the privilege of looking after them. And so there's a whole lot of honor attached to, to that practice. Well, that's what you would expect. That's just how teachers worked. And so when Paul comes to a town, he can expect that people are going to look after him because that's the standard practice. He says, but look at what I did. See, if I'd come to you Thessalonians and said, hey, pay up, you know, I'm a teacher, you know, I'm a respected teacher, you should look after me. He, have, he has a right to do that. But what that would have led to was the, would be the impoverishment of the Thessalonians because the Thessalonians didn't have any money. They were poor. I mean, this is, you're talking about a time where people are generally living in subsistence level poverty. Now, had Paul come to a city and said, all right, well, I'm going to receive support. The only people who could afford to support somebody like Paul would be the wealthy. And so the only people that he could appeal to and talk to would be the wealthy. They would be the ones who were paying for his services. And so they would benefit from all of his services. But Paul doesn't want to just preach to the rich. He wants to preach to everybody. And so to preach to the poor... He needs to be able to be with them and have time with them, but that's not going to happen if he's relying on them to pay him because they don't have the money to pay him. So what Paul does instead is just, look, I wanted to come to you. You couldn't afford to have me with you, but what I did was when I did come to you, I paid for myself. I worked alongside you. And when I was doing my leather working alongside you other tradespeople, well, we just chatted about Christ. We just talked about discipleship. We talked about the things of God. And so that's how I came to you. And so what he's saying here is that you need to follow in our example. If you're going to do this Christian ministry, well, it's going to come at a cost. You can't just wait for the person who's going to be able to afford to pay for you for your services. You need to be able to just go and do it and make a way for that to happen. So Paul says, well, in that way, follow after our example as well. Don't be lazy. Don't be dependent on other people. Be willing to put your hands to the, to the, to the plow, put your hands to the wheel and, and, and get, the, get it done and make it possible and to resource yourself in order to be able to, to do this. Then finally in Philippians 3, Philippians 3.13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Brothers, verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, for anyone who's following along, I've also got a a YouTube, shorter YouTube video of this particular topic um, filmed in Ephesus just last year. And we talk a little bit more, a little bit about this verse there as well. Interestingly, this is a, this is a great one because the thing we have to remember when we read Philippians is it was it was written from prison. Paul was sitting in a Roman jail when he wrote this, and he says, you know, he says I don't consider that I've made it my own, but I'm pressing on, forgetting what lies behind. I'm pressing on, straining forward to the things that lie ahead. And you go, but hang on a second, what are you even talking about, Paul? You're in a jail, like. What is it that lies ahead of you than more jail? He says, but you know what? It doesn't matter what my circumstances are. Wherever I find myself, I'm doing the will of God. Even in the worst possible circumstances where 
I actually don't even have the means to be able to get out and preach or do the things that I used to do. I'm still here. I'm still serving Christ. And so there's a job to do. Whatever the circumstances might be, there's a job to do. And for me, if it's in jail, and he says earlier on in the letter, he says, you know, it's been hard being in jail, sure, but I've also got the opportunity to preach to the palace guard. I've got opportunity to preach to people that I might not have otherwise had the opportunity to preach to because I'm here in this particular prison. So even in the worst possible circumstances, Paul's looking for the opportunities. Paul's recognizing that, well, in that situation, those are the opportunities that are there. So this is an opportunity to serve Christ. And he says, well, that's what I want from you Philippians as well. You guys are free. You know, you, you might be facing some persecution. Okay, I'm in prison. I get it. We're all suffering alongside together. But don't see that as a, a reason to pull back. Don't see that as a reason to give up or just, well, I'm too tired or I'm too busy or I'm too stressed or whatever it might be. No, no, no. Wherever you find yourself, there's an opportunity to serve. So look for that opportunity. Keep pressing forward. Keep looking to do the things that God's called you to do. And if you want a really great example of that, look at me. Here I am in prison, still looking for the ways that I can possibly serve God. So in all these different ways, Paul's saying, imitate me. Imitate the way that I pursue Christ. Don't be like me. I'm not your savior. Christ is. But the way that I pursue my savior, use that as an example of how you too should pursue the savior. So some of the principles we might take out of this just for your own life. Well, do you have a Paul that you look up to? Is there somebody in the faith, somebody further down the road than you, who you look at and you say, you're pursuing Christ in a way that just looks right. That just strikes me as being the way that it we're supposed to be going after him. Do you, do you have that person in your life? Are you pursuing them if you have that person? If you're looking for I guess, ways to identify who that is. What is, what is this exemplar supposed to look, to, to look like? Well, have they stood the test? Have they been doing it for a long time? Have they been through the hard times? Have you seen them go through the hard times? Are they, are they open about having gone through those difficult times and come through the other end? Can, can you learn from them? Are they, do they use that as a lesson as much as how to deal with the good times? Ultimately, you're looking for that person who's shown time and again that they've lived out the message. In the hard times, in the easy times, whatever their circumstances, the, what's common through all of it is that they're pursuing Christ. But also, are you in a place of Timothy? Are you actually discipling others as well? You know, it's one thing to look up to somebody ahead of you and follow after them, but it's another thing as well to lead. And we're called to do both. We're called to look to exemplars and see them as, a, as role models, but also to be the role model for those who are coming after us. And so it's both working together at the same time. And so are you following after a mentor? Do you have that mentor in your life? And then also, are you being a mentor to somebody else? Uh, because I think really that is the picture of discipleship. It's both being discipled, but it's also doing the work of discipleship. Well, anyway, I hope that's been helpful. Uh, and I'll see you all next week. All the best. 